Before we get into today's show, I just wanted to let you know about our new podcast that I'm so excited about called Mindbenders. It's a podcast about stories of synchronicity that can bend minds. You can find Mindbenders podcast at Spotify, Apple podcast, and mindbenderspodcast.com. Submit your mind-bending story today by emailing us at mindbenders at path11productions.com or by calling us. Leave your story on our voicemail. It's okay if it's a long one. We'll call you back. 1-323-713-1113. Again, that's 1-323-713-1113. Also, the 2020 Virtual Afterlife Awareness Conference has ended, but the replays are still available at path11productions.com slash ac2020. For $129, you can watch just over 17 hours of streamed videos from professionals including Robert Moss, Austin Wells, Edie Nathan, Brian Smith, and Daniel 4 PhD, just to name a few of the presenters. Visit path11productions.com slash AC2020 to see the complete list. Topics include dealing with grief, working with death doulas, psychic children, and suicide. These videos won't last forever, but they can be watched anytime at your convenience until September 30th, 2020. Visit path11productions.com slash AC2020 for all the information. And if you haven't seen our documentaries yet, the Path Series Trilogy, you can watch all three for free at Gaia.com. Just sign up for their one-week free trial. You can cancel at any time and watch The Path Afterlife, The Path Beyond the Physical, and The Path Evolution. Oh, and before we get into our show, I wanted to remind you to use your 25% off discount code PATH2PORTAL, all caps, PATH, the number two portal, path to portal at reconnection.com for trainings by Dr. Eric Pearl. They absolutely loved being on our show and they wanted to give back to our listeners. So you guys are lucky and are getting 25% off if you go to their website, reconnection.com. All of these links are listed in the show notes for today's episode. So enough of all these announcements, let's get to our show for today. And thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast today. I'm curious for those of you who are watching and listening, do you have a fear of death? And our guest today hopefully is going to help you with that fear. I would like to introduce you to Kelvin Chin. He's a speaker, author, and meditation teacher, executive director and founder of the Overcoming the Fear of Death Foundation and TurningWithin.org. He has worked on death and dying issues since the 1980s. He's born in Boston. Austin, and he has lived in six countries and lectures worldwide. Kelvin, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I wanted to show people just the cover of your book here. Uh, he sent me a copy. It's Overcoming the Fear of Death. And uh, it's a really great quick read. It's very easy. It's really interesting because you put in four different belief systems that people have. You give great examples. You tell wonderful stories. And I really, really enjoyed it. So um Maybe we can begin by letting our listeners know a little bit more about you and your background. Sure. Um, I think, uh, well, I've, I kind of opened up very young, very early at a, in my aunt's 
told me, this is how I know, my aunts told me uh, when I was a teenager, they told me about what I would do when I was one or one and a half, two years old when I would visit my grandparents at their house. My mom was the eldest in the family. And they said that, uh, so she got married first and all that. So her, her younger sisters were, you know, in high school and junior high school. And they would tell me that, that I used to play with angels when I was a year and a half, two years old, but I didn't remember it when I was a teenager, probably because they kind of made fun of me a little bit when I was little and I probably squelched it. That's my putting two and two together. So it started very early. Evidently, they tell me for me this lifetime. And then I learned to meditate when I was a teenager, um, my late teens. And then, um, in, uh, these are kind of the milestones in the mid, in my mid twenties, my, my after my, my, um, uh, past life memories opened up. And then in the mid eighties, I opened up to the other side, started talking with lots of people on the other side, beings, et cetera. And, um, it, all of that's continued to present. Uh, but what got me going in the death and dying arena, ironically was not what, not those experiences was what was when my mom died. That's what was the watershed moment for me. And I talk about that, as you know, in the book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you. I thank you for sharing that too. Um, so I have to tell you a little bit of a synchronistic story. I yeah. was on uh, a phone call doing telehealth medicine with one of my clients. Uh, the day I got your book, and I kind of, I love to give real life examples because I just think that it helps people. And, you know, we're doing this interview during a pandemic and, um, you know, one of, one of my clients was really struggling with being triggered with death, you know, um, has children. One of her children is immune compromised. And when she was about eight years old, she had lost her mom unexpectedly and had passed away. So, wow. you know, during this time, um, she's feeling, you know, of course, a lot of different emotions and like most young children, they're running around outside when they get a chance to play. And she ended up having to take her son to the emergency room because oh. he poked his eye with a stick. Oh. And so we were talking just a lot about all of these different emotions that were coming up and really, uh, pinpointing that her biggest trigger is people dying on her, you know, fear of her children dying, a fear sure. of her dying. And then, um, you know, get off the phone with her. I go and check the mail and boom, <laughs> overcoming yeah. fear of death. So I sent her a picture yeah. of this. I said, I'm going to send this to you when I'm done. Because yeah. when we were talking, I was like, you know what, if we can just begin to help you a little bit more with this fear of death, and how do you begin to uh, just accept it a little bit more and not be so fearful of it, and you talk a lot about that in your book, about how many people, especially in the beginning of this with children, parents sometimes don't even have language or know even how to talk to children about death. And you gave a really great job about describing um, some just nice suggestions and how you should go about doing that. So I wanted to bring that story into this interview because it was synchronistic. Sure. And, yeah. um, you know, I told her I'm going to give her the book and she'll probably watch this podcast but also wanted to just kind of get your take a little bit on it as we move into this conversation about how to help people overcome their fear of death. Yeah, I think the it, it's the it's the elephant in the room that people don't talk about. Of course, we all know that, and uh, we need to talk about it more. And uh, as you know from the book, I have two children, and my now now they're much older: twenty five year old daughter and a thirty two year old son. 
But uh, when my dad was dying in 1999, obviously they were whatever, do the math. They were much, much younger. And we, uh, my, my, my uh, wife and I, we, we made it very nor as normal as possible uh, as it, it, that, that grandpa was not well and he was sick and he was dying. And we explained to them, I mean, it, you know, they wrapped their mind around it as best they could. And we made it as a normal a conversation as possible. They knew that we were sad and so forth. I mean, we didn't hide any emotions. All of that is what I mean when I say make it as normal as possible. So it's normal to be sad. It's normal to be confused. It's normal to not know uh, exactly how long grandpa's going to be around because none of us knew. He didn't know. The doctors didn't know. So all of that was very transparent to our kids to the point where when he did die um, and he wanted to be cremated and so forth, our kids, well, not only that, but he died in our living room, in my living room, in of the, uh, our living room of the house. And we woke the kids up at two in the morning so that they could see grandpa. But they they had seen him falling asleep at the dining room table when he would come over and so forth because of the medication, et cetera, that he was in, the, the, the morphine and so forth to control his pain. And they increased it, as, as you know how that goes, uh, especially with, with pain medication near the end. And... Um, and when he died, we woke them up and had them come out. And, you know, my daughter, Sam, was what? She was uh, five years old. And, and Jesse was, um, you know, 10 years old. And, and they came out and they saw his body and so forth. And we all stood around him, et cetera. Um, and, then, and then when we took him to be cremated, well, well we, we, we went to where he was being cremated. And we saw him for the last time. The kids were right there right there up to that moment. So um, my kids have grown up with it. It's very normal for them. Um, but again, my memories that go back so long, and I've had so much experience on the other side, that all predates their birth. So they've grown up in a household that's very comfortable talking about death and dying for a number of reasons. You know, But I encourage parents to do that to whatever extent they can, regardless of whether they've had experiences like I have. Well, you make a really good point in your book, too, that if you as the adult are struggling with your relationship with death, you have to really work on that first before you begin to talk to yeah. your children. Yeah. And you also brought up a really good point, which is kind of modeling behavior. So if the children are able to see that you're calm and the way that you're describing it to them is kind of this natural process and the parents are able to maintain grounding and give right. their children a sense of ease then that's how the children will, will react to it. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And uh, here's, a, here's an interesting story for you. Our, my, my, our daughter um, had a memory, and I, and I talk about this in the book, in, in the, uh, one of the chapters, later chapters, when we talk about that belief system, um, where she, um, the belief system about, you know, afterlife, one of the belief systems about afterlife, um, where she, um, she remembers being in a dust storm with, and she thought it was us walking next to her, holding her hand. And, um, uh, this is the very short version of it, but, um, 
she told us recently, like five years ago, that she'd had this memory since she was just the oldest memory she's had this lifetime. She thinks it happened when she was two, when she was a couple of years old, because she was born in Las Vegas, Nevada, where, where it's a desert. And um, she told us recently, and, and her mom and I, it wasn't us, we would not, that would be bad parenting. We would not have you in a dust storm when you were a year or two old walking. And we, and plus, you were not walking in Las Vegas. We moved to Los Angeles when you were six months old. So it was definitely not this lifetime experience. Well, that, that, was a, that was an interesting kind of corroborative, uh, odd experience that was so clear to her uh, that she's had. Uh, this lifetime, she thinks it's her oldest memory from this lifetime, and then we realized it was not from this lifetime. Wow. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. maybe we should just talk about those four belief systems you've alluded to just quickly because we've kind of touched on it, and people are probably going, what? What are they talking about? Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> so, so the four belief systems are basically this, and I came up with these four belief systems. They're not religious or cultural beliefs. They basically underlie all the religious and cultural beliefs in the world. And I came up with these with uh, talking with my friend George because we said, you know, how can we talk about this so that people can talk about these things without getting into arguments about who's right and who's wrong about their perceptions about death and dying uh, from a religious or cultural standpoint. So th the first belief is the science belief, the belief that my dad had, which is one life, that's it. The brain and the mind are the same. There is no afterlife. That's the first belief system. The second belief system is belief in an afterlife, but there's fear. So there's, and it could be fear from a number of different sources. Uh, I call it the fear of continued existence. So that's the second belief system. Third belief system is belief in an afterlife of some sort, but no fear, and, and, and maybe even looking forward to it. Fourth belief system is reincarnation, past lives, future lives, and so forth. You can choose to come back if you want to, into another physical, biological body and have another lifetime. That's the fourth belief system. So everybody falls somewhere in that spectrum. And then some people may be fence-sitters. A lot of people are fence-sitters. A lot of people are first, second belief, belief system believers, and so forth. And I help people regardless of where they are. So they may be uh, anywhere in that spectrum. Plus, they may be atheist, agnostic, very... Uh, uh, much a believer in a God figure or not. It doesn't matter. So can you give us maybe a couple of examples to uh, maybe one that really sticks out of somebody, you know, that you have testimonials on your website too, but if somebody that really, you know, came to you, had a fear of death and in working with you, they were able to work through that. How does, how do you work uh, with people through that process? Sure. So, so, Typically, they come to me, they find me on the internet most of the time because I, I'm such a high Google search result, but uh, for fear of death. But um, they, they, they come to me from around the world, 41 countries so far. And um, I always ask them what, you know, to, to tell me what their story is because it's not about my story, it's not about my belief system, it's about theirs. So I hear what their story is and, and what their fears are, they describe it to me. And they describe to me what their belief system about death and dying is. As I said, the most common one is that is the first belief. They say, say that they're the first belief. They say they think that there's this is it, one life, that's it. And, um, and I point out to them, well, if you really believe that, 
What's fear? Fear is the emotion caused by the anticipation of unhappiness. So if you really believe the first belief system, like my dad did, you should have no belief about, I mean, no fear about death, because your belief is your mind and your brain are going to end when your brain shuts off, when your physical body dies, your biological body dies. Well, should be no fear of that. But they have fear, otherwise they're not contacting me. So I point out to them that they're, 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 they're a hybrid. They're a first and a second, because very often it's, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm afraid of oblivion. I'm afraid of that I might not can, that I'm, that I might continue, and I don't know what's going to happen. So basically, um, that's the most common fear, and uh, it distills down to one thing, and that's the fear of uncertainty. And I tell people, look, I cannot get rid of uncertainty, but I can help you get rid of the fear. So I had... Um, um, a, a, you know, a, a number of re recent um, uh, clients uh, who I've helped, and, and Jeremy Taylor's one. He's on my test. He's a, he, he did a long testimonial. It's interesting story because um, um, he's a, he's in his early 30s when he con contacted me a few years ago, and I always check in with my clients and I say, "How are you doing?" I send him a text or an email, whatever. <clears throat> every once in a while, just see how you're doing and, and do you want to contact me and would you want to have a, a session and, 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 and just chat with me? And I, and I don't charge for that typically as a follow-up. And, um, and uh, I got radio silence from him, radio silence, radio silence. After a few years, he sends me this long email, which I just cut and pasted uh, in, in, into, onto my website. And, uh, of course, I asked permission first. And, and it, it basically... His fear went away, and he doesn't know when it went away. This, this is the common pattern, because you have the fear when you're very much aware of it, obviously. And people will call me like I have two calls this afternoon with people that can't sleep at night. One of, one's 24 years old. Another one's 16 years old. I have, you know, 35, 40 years old, all different ages. And um, they can't sleep, and so then they find me. Um, and he was having similar issues. He has his own company, uh, happily married, young children, and so forth. But it was debilitating. But he wrote me this long email, said he just realized that after a while, it had gone away. I had helped him by talking with him about, as I said, what's your fear? So we, go, we approach it from two, two, two angles. One is the understanding. What's the fear? What's really the fear of? Is it the fear of death or is it the fear of the process of dying? Is it the fear of losing loved ones? There's a lot of different fears that may not actually be the fear of death. So I help people with the fear of death and the related fears, but we need to identify what's the fear first because we apply the appropriate solution. And then I, and I very often will teach them to meditate. Uh, if they want to learn to meditate, I'll teach them to meditate. That gives them an experiential uh, a, a way to reduce their cortisol levels and turn on the opposite of the fight or flight switch. As you know, I've been teaching meditation for 47 years now. So, um, and the combo of that, he realized after he wasn't sure, was it a year? Was it two years? What do I, it just had gone away. And he wrote me a, a long email and he did a little video for my, he volunteered to do a video for my website, but yeah, very common story. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you do talk a lot about meditation in your book and the process of going within. So you were just mentioning that too. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of what that means to go within? Yeah. So I, I call my meditation turning within meditation. 
I, I first learned transcendental meditation in, in, the ni- in 1970, I learned. So I've been meditating for 50 years now. Um, and and um, I taught TM for 10 years, and, and I was very close with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, uh, who, who um, uh, was the, you know, uh, person who brought that to the to the West and so forth. Um, um, I was an international leader in that organization for 10 years. I moved away from it after about 10 years. They went a different direction. And I've continued to teach meditation since. Um, but I've removed a culture, all the cultural uh, trappings from the teaching and made it even easier uh, and more flexible, uh, more adaptable to people's everyday lifestyle, um, busy lifestyle. But the very, way I teach it is very, very easy. No effort, no control, no focus, no concentration, no clearing of the mind. So it's a very easy process. Whether people do my technique or whether they do some other technique, I am a supporter of people generally turning within. And the idea is the, to turn within in, the, in an easy, as easy and effortless way as possible in order to turn on, as I said, the opposite of the fight or flight switch, which in medical terms is called the parasympathetic nervous system. And if we can turn on the parasympathetic nervous system on a regular basis by finding a way to turn within easily and effortlessly, to turn it on easily and effortlessly, regularly twice a day, then that balances out the system. So our cortisol, our lactic acid, and there's 40 to 60 other hormones and chemicals that need to be in balance all the time in order for us to feel balanced and, as you say, grounded inside. That's, that's, that's the ideal. And so the combination between turning within and dealing with ourselves, helping ourselves neurophysiologically from a biochemistry and a brain chemistry standpoint, as well as expanding our conscious capacity for experience mentally outside of what I refer to as the eight-inch plastic bucket uh, part of our mind. It's kind of that, that focusing part of our mind that people think is their mind. That's a small part of our mind. It is part of our mind, but it's just a small part of our mind and we can expand into the vastness of our mind through meditation, that also relaxes us in addition to opening us up to more of who we are in, 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 many, in many multifarious ways. But um, the, the idea is to turn within experientially and then understanding from an intellectual standpoint what's going on in terms of the death and dying process and helping unbundle that. So that's why I call it the two-prong approach, understanding and experience. Yeah. So you said something that I think, um, if people were listening closely, they are probably going to say, I want to learn his meditation technique because it sounds like you are taking out maybe some of these bells and whistles of people feeling like, okay, I need a specific amount of time. I need to put my earbuds in. I need to listen to music. I need to be laying down. I need my eyes covered. Um, so I can't have any light coming in. And I think a lot of people get tripped up with really what does it mean to meditate and that sometimes you don't need to have this entire process to get ready to sit down and to meditate. So can you talk exactly. a little bit about the simplicity of your process? Yes, it, it, it should be simple because any, any meditation process, whether it's my process or any process, it should be simple because what's meditation essentially? Essentially what we label and we call meditation is our mind allowing our mind to experience itself in this different way that we happen to be calling meditation. It's our mind experiencing itself. That's really essentially what meditation is. Problem is, most people 
we, we, we all, most people, everybody, we get caught up in all the white noise that very often is part of our, men, our, our, our mind's process, our thinking and so forth. And, and, and how do you deal with that? And the problem is that most techniques deal with that in what I've distilled down to one sentence. They've, they use waking state rules instead of meditation rules in meditation. And so what does that mean? What's waking state? Waking state, I'm walking through that door over there. I need to focus. I need to control my body. I need to pay attention to where my shoulder is. I don't want to bang it on the door jam, carrying Amazon boxes down to my dumpster or whatever, you know, especially these days. I got to pay attention. Focus control when you're driving a car is really important. That's waking. Those are waking state rules. In meditation, no. Focus and control should not be part of meditation because meditation should be a letting go process. Letting go of what? Letting go of our emotional anxiety, baggage, and so forth our imbalances, and letting go and allowing our mind to expand its conscious capacity for mental experience. It should be a letting go process. If it's a letting go process, it's not a restrictive control and focus process. So focusing on the breath, focusing on a candle, focusing on a, a thought, focusing on a phrase, all of that is misplaced. I've, I've distilled it down to that one simple sentence. The, the, in, the, the misplacement and use of waking state rules in meditation instead of meditation rules. And meditation rules should be not focusing, not directing the mind, allowing the mind to do what it would, wants to do, which is sometimes going all over the place. <laughs> and so my technique allows that, and then we overlay a specific step-by-step -step process on top of that allowing the mind to do whatever it's gonna do, as opposed to controlling the mind which is going to keep us in that little eight-inch plastic bucket part of our mind that we talked about earlier. Wow. So that's the first time I've ever heard anybody explain meditation like that. And you basically just pop my bubble because I have been teaching meditation classes all wrong. Oh, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, now I have more research to do. But that's yeah. really interesting because, you know, with guided meditation, that you're 100% right. I mean, that's kind of how I learned to direct people, you know, focus on this, feel this, sense this, find it in your body, um, right. constantly making them focus. So when you're saying, yeah. A letting go process and letting the mind do whatever it wants to is this more of just observation like you're being the observer of the mind sort of sort of sort of yes uh it's more observational and at the same time you're still allowing your mind to not be observational too so that so this is there's a bunch of nuances of this when i teach the class you should take my class because you'll see the nuances of it. It may help you in your teaching because the, the, the nuances of that, because it's yes and no to the answer to that question. And you'd see what I mean when I, when I go through the class uh, with people and, and those people who are watching this, who are taking my class, will go, yeah, I don't, I understand what he means, <laughs> you know, but, um, but, to, but to your guided meditation, there's nothing wrong with guided meditations. It's just different from what I teach. And, it, and, and, and I would do guided meditations after you do my technique, you get much more out of the guided meditation, mm. but it's not a replacement for my technique. So like I've taught Buddhist monks my meditation technique. They still do. They're in a monastery meditating all day. They do their Buddhist meditation all day. It's fine. I just tell them don't mix techniques 
and do mine first. And they would all come back and say, wow, we get so much more out of my Buddhist meditation. They, they've been meditating for 5, 10, 15, 20 years in their monastery. And then they, they found me. What, what happened was one monk, one or two monks came, and that was it. And then they started <laughs> telling their friends. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Okay. Well, you definitely have me interested because, you know, I'm always looking just for new techniques and to be better and, yeah. and to give, you know, people that come to my classes just a better experience. So I'm very intrigued, very interested. Um, another direction that I'd like to go in, in, yeah. um, let me just go through where I bookmark this too, in the book, uh, in talking about overcoming the fear of death, you do talk about near death experiences, um, yes. and also past lives. So, um, and there's some just amazing stories in here of both. Um, and I, I don't know which was my favorite or which one I would pick out of here. But, you know, I have found in the research that I have done, um, you know, and listening to people, the thing that brought me a lot of comfort when I started on this journey and overcoming my fear of death really was the near-death experience stories. I don't know why, it just felt like maybe these are the people that have come the closest to what we all want to know and they've come back to report about it. And what I find fascinating with near-death experiences is that there tends to be a common thread through them, depending upon whether, whatever they see, like you mentioned, Eben Alexander, we've had him on the podcast um, before. So our audience is familiar with his near death experience and, yep. you know, people will have a different experience uh, and what they report visually or what they saw, what they heard, but there are certain things that are very common in all. And to me, that made me feel pretty hopeful about, okay, I know I'm probably going to go somewhere after I leave this physical right, body. Right. So can you talk right. a little bit about why you decided to put that in your book and why you talk about near-death experiences and past lives? Sure, because, um, well, first of all, I've had all of the above experiences. I didn't talk about my near-death experience in the book because mine was a little bit unusual from the usual uh, near-death experiences. So I put two near-death experiences in my book that show a range of near-death experiences. And as you say the peacefulness and so forth, and sometimes going to the other side, sometimes not going to the other side is, are all near-death experiences. There's a huge range of experience within the near-death experience category, if you will. Um, so some people, for example, in one of the stories, you know, my, my, my college buddy, he went to the ceiling and he's observing his body, which was dying on the, his mother's living room floor when he was eight years old and he was hemorrhaging inside. And so he had that type of near-death experience. And then there's another uh, near-death experience I talk about in the book with another friend of mine when he was in his 50s. He died in, in, in a hospital, all hooked up, wired up with eight or 10 nurses and doctors in the room. And he went to like what he said was, Jay said it was like outer space. That, that, that one is on my website that people can actually download and, and, and read that one uh, for free on my website. Uh, he's uh, outer space. And then and he came back down, shooting back into his body through like what he felt like was really, really fast and then shot into his body and sat right up after being dead for 20 minutes. Right. 20 minutes is a long time. Those people who know have any healthcare background, four to six minutes is usually the longest you're dead for. In other words, dead meaning no breathing, no heart, you know, no, no, no machines helping you breathe and so forth, heart beating or anything, any of that. Um, 20 minutes. And so uh, he came back in. All his allergies were gone, uh, and he was, you know, no brain, no brain damage, no nothing. He was 100% when he came back. 
So, those, so I, I put those in there to give people a sense, just data points. I call them data points. Not that I'm trying to change people's belief system, but that just to give them a, 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 a vicarious view into somebody else's experience. And, um, and most of the experiences, I don't talk about mine in there. Um, actually, I'm doing a, a afterlife and video uh, afterlife and um, reincarnation video conference series starting this Sunday, uh, May uh, May 17th. So, um, and I do it every four months. It's a six-part series. If people are interested in in in, in that, they can contact me. But um, I get into more of my experiences there. But in my book, I'm mostly talking about other experiences because I wanted to use them as teaching tools, not to showcase. Um, you know, I didn't want to make it all about me. And so um, the after the past life experiences you're referring to, I, uh, there's one in there that you and I talked about briefly uh, beforehand uh, it, that I just found. Uh, it, somebody sent it to me. It was on Yahoo News, and it was about this um, <clears throat> little boy. What was his name? Was it Luke? Uh, his name yeah. was yeah. His, I have it bookmarked here. I'm, I'm pretty yeah, sure it was, it was Luke. Luke. Yes, it yeah, was yeah. Luke Ruhlman. So, yeah, a little boy, young boy. And he lives in some place in the Midwest. I think it was in Ohio or something like that. And and he's sitting on his. And he's about I don't know two, three, four, two, three, four, five years old, sitting on his mom's lap as she's putting her makeup on and getting. And and, uh, and he and he's a little. And he's white. He's a, he's a Caucasian little boy with a Caucasian mom, and which is material to the story. And and he and he goes, uh, oh, mommy. I like your earrings. I used to have earrings like that. And she's going, what? And he's talking about earrings and da, da, da. But long story short, she starts, he starts telling her all these, what I call data points, all these little specific uh, uh, details in, of information. And she starts connecting the dots. She does, the mom does some research, finds out. Uh, and then he starts talking about his curly hair. He doesn't have curly hair. Uh, but you know, when he was wearing earrings, he had curly hair and he had dark skin. And then turns out that he was, uh, she connected the dots, found out, and he, he had this, he had this very unusual fear, not from this lifetime of, of fire and heights. And he would always tell, you know, stay away from me, you know, whatever, you know, just anyway. And, and he, uh, she connected the dots. Finally, bottom line is she realized that in 19, whenever, 90 something, mm -hmm. uh, 1992 or something like that, uh, uh, an African-American uh, woman died by jumping out of a hotel that was in an African-American uh, part or suburb or something, a section of Chicago uh, during a fire. And she died. She jumped out and died. And um, the other interesting thing was he he has this very uh you know, you know, strange in terms of how old he is and what generation he is. He's a young kid now of uh, of uh, Stevie Wonder music, and he loves Stevie Wonder music. Right, right, and yeah. he would carry around his Fisher Price uh, Fisher Price keyboard wherever he was, his little toy keyboard, you know. And uh, turns out that this woman Pam, the African American woman who died, um, uh was a keyboard player and, and and loved Stevie Wonder music because the, the Luke's mom connected with her mom who is still alive and found all this stuff out about about this woman Pam uh, and then and then they showed him I guess on the life life lifestyle life uh, channel or whatever on TV they showed him a picture of twelve photographs on camera uh, you can YouTube this and he, and he and they one was a picture of Pam 
and he looked at the 12 pictures and he said, this looks familiar to me. Somebody looks very familiar to me. That's me right there. And he picked out the woman, Pam, who had jumped out of the <laughs> fifth story woman. So there you go. That's pretty, that's fairly, I would say that's fairly good third party corroborative <laughs> evidence, you know, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, how do you, yeah, how do you dispute that? I mean, those stories are fascinating to me. And, you know, I've talked to other people where uh, they say, you know, listen to kids, listen to them, because when they, especially when they're that young, I've heard that they're still in between both worlds, you know, that they're, um, they're able to still see a lot because they haven't totally, you know, have come in into this 3D world, you know, or the full consciousness. So yeah, I would agree with you. How how do you dispute that? And I teach young kids to meditate. My kids, I taught them when they were four years old. So I could teach kids. They don't do it eyes closed like you and I would do and so forth. It's a slightly different technique. But it helps keep them more open because when they go to school, you can see the kids start to close down their consciousness. You can see them starting to close down because of the structure. You've got to be a class. Oh, you've got to raise your hand to go to the bathroom. All of those little things start to shut the kid down. And so I teach kids very, very young. In fact, I'm teaching uh, uh, Monday. I'm teaching a, a young kid. Um, his mother. I taught his mother, and she's and he's just like totally curious. Anyway, so that's something a way to keep the kids more open, so that they don't get shut down like that. Because you're right, they have a foot in both worlds when they're very, very young. Right. Yeah. So I love those stories. Thanks so much for putting them in your book too. And um, so why don't we let people know how they can work with you? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty busy. You work with people virtually, it sounds. And um, yeah, so let's take them over to your website, uh, Overcoming the Fear of Death. You have a couple of them. So yeah, I have several websites. The easiest thing is if you see this website, you can go here and then you go to the footer of any page you go down to the bottom, oh, wow, we can scroll to the bottom, and you can see at the very bottom of any page on all my web, there's Jeremy Taylor, the one who I was telling you about. Um, and then there's, um, there's Steve, uh, uh, who had two strokes recently. Uh, that's him in Iraq. Um, he was a fleet, uh, uh, head of a fleet. And then there's my friend uh, Nat in Switzerland. I, so I teach worldwide. Uh, I taught her to meditate and helped her deal with the death of her mom. And that's, a, that's my friend Jimmy right there, who was a Vietnam War vet um, who died. I helped him die, and there's uh, all kinds of stories there and so forth. But if you scroll all the way to the bottom of any page on any of my websites, there's a hot link. There are th- hot links to the other three websites. So I have four websites. So if you go down into the, um, the, you know, the, the green section of uh, any page on any of the websites, um, there's uh, links to the other three websites. Um, and I also do a free phone session uh, for people uh, about anything. So they can just make an appointment with me to go to the contact page. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. They can just find me. Kelvin Chin Turning Within is what the YouTube channel is called. Um, and um, so they can subscribe to that and uh, or connect with me on Facebook, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and like I said, I have that afterlife video, conf- uh, afterlife, um, and, um, uh, reincarnation series starting this Sunday in every four months I do it. Great. And then, so just about the, uh, teaching how you do your meditation, the one that I'm going to be interested in, uh, yeah. when do you have that coming up next? Is that, so my, yeah, I, uh, my class just filled up last night, my May 22nd class. 
Uh, my classes every week have been filling up since the beginning of March, since this COVID-19 uh, increased anxiety, understandably, about it. Um, and um, I, I'm teaching um, seniors and immune suppressed for free right now during the COVID-19. Um, and and I, I turn nobody away for finance, financial reasons anyway. So that's always been my policy. Um, but uh, so I so I'm scheduling my my June class right now. So I have a, a June class and I'm scheduling now. Okay. Uh, but people just get in touch with me and fig figure it out. Great. Good yeah, to know. I'm, I'm actually I'm actually teaching a, one of the New York hospitals that's all COVID nineteen patients. I'm teaching the medical staff. Um, we're scheduling that right now. The Wonderful. doctors. Yeah. That's great. Well, Kelvin, thank you so much uh, for being a guest on the Path Eleven podcast. I really enjoyed your book. I feel like I've learned something really cool today, and I'm yeah. really excited to hop on board and take one of your meditation classes and learn a new skill. And hopefully, I'll be able to bring that to my clients too and help them. So, thanks great. so much for all the work that you're great. doing. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to this week's show. Before you go, I just wanted to remind you to listen to our new podcast, Mindbenders. Visit mindbenderspodcast.com to hear my dad's synchronistic story, I Hope It'll Bend Your Mind, about Jimi Hendrix. Then submit your story if you think it can bend our minds. Also be sure to check out the video replays of the 2020 Virtual Afterlife Conference. We have over 17 hours of amazing presenters exploring the survival of consciousness after death, working with hospice professionals, physicians, mediums, clergy, counselors, and alternative healers to offer a deeper understanding of death and beyond.